Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and can you believe it? This is our first greatest hits. We've already finished season one, and we're going to look back at some of my favorite moments from the inaugural season of Big Questions. I have to dedicate this episode to Tim Ferriss and once again thank him for making it all possible. I first appeared as a guest on Tim's podcast about two years ago. It got a huge response, and afterward, Tim told me I had to start one on my own. But I was scared. Scared of messing with the audio because I've never been a technological guy. So I kept pushing it away, and Tim kept pulling me back. And he was right. As soon as I started, I knew this is where I belong. In the first season, we've had Kobe Bryant before he won an Oscar for Best Animated Short with Dare Basketball, Dr. Oz, Damon John from Shark Tank, marketing legend Seth Godin, Soul Cycle CEO Melanie Whelan, my mentee and mentor Alex Benayan, New York Times best-selling author Randy Zuckerberg, Scooter Braun, the manager of Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande, and chairman and CEO of BET, Deborah Lee. And of course, we had Tim on to start the party. So I thought it would be great to look back on the festivities. And it's wonderful to see all my recording equipment spread out in front of me, knowing that I can operate it. Some podcasters, they have to learn how to interview a little better or sharpen up their storytelling. Me, I gotta learn to hook up wires. But they're all hooked up. So let's go. But first, I'd like to show a little gratitude to my sponsors during this first season. Not only do I know how to hook up wires and read my Zoom 86 handy recorder, but I now have a new website. It's on Squarespace, and it sparkles. Squarespace allows you to create a beautiful website. Your photos will pop. Your copy will be crisp and clean. Check mine out and see. All I'm getting are compliments. So go to squarespace.com, type in the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N and get 10% off your next domain name or website. You'll be as happy as I am. And ZipRecruiter. I gotta admit, sometimes it's fun just to say ZipRecruiter. But if you're looking to hire somebody, saying ZipRecruiter is gonna be more than fun. ZipRecruiter is going to make your life a lot easier. That's because all you need to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com, type in the job description, and within 24 hours, you'll be getting qualified candidates. ZipRecruiter's algorithms will locate the talent you need. So go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get a free trial. ZipRecruiter. It's the smartest way to hire. 
let's tip off with NBA star Kobe Bryant. He retires, and what's he do for his next act? He wins an Academy Award for Best Animated Short. Here's a segment from our conversation about when he first heard the music composed by John Williams for Dear Basketball. The animator, Glenn Keane, is at his side. It's like listening to Kobe watch two other Kobe's playing their own game. What's it like working with John Williams? This guy is like our Beethoven. Right. Bigger than Beethoven. He's done music for more than 100 films. Uh, Jaws, mm -hmm. Jurassic Park, Star Wars. Mm -hmm. How is that collaboration process between the two of you? you know, it, was, it, was a, it was seamless. Um, you know, I think the, the wonderful thing about their basketball is that all three of us, um, you know, including Glenn, um, all approached our craft exactly the same way, with infinite curiosity and with this childlike wonder of it. And uh, and so the process was extremely seamless. I mean, we sat down, and, you know, I talked to him on the phone about it, and he read the letter and loved the letter. And um, and his question was, well, I, I really need to see the piece to really, he said, I want to do this for you, but I, but I, I want to know that, you know, I don't want, you know, these orchestral pieces that that I do to be too much for the piece, um, and that was his concern. And when we went to the Glenn Studio and we sat down and we watched it, he said, "No, this is you're absolutely right. This requires it needs uh, an orchestral piece, a composition of that magnitude. It actually would feel different if it didn't have it." And then it was just about the nature of the piece. What does it mean? How does it hit home um, personally? And then once he once he found that that nugget, then it was just like the light went off. <laughs> you can see it. Like he knew exactly what he wanted to do right then and there in the room. It's like he knew exactly where he wanted to start. He knew you know how he wanted to move through the piece. So as we're watching it on the monitor. And you see him kind of, his fingers kind of moving through the air. You know, he's hearing something, some language that he can only hear. <laughs> oh, man. And, you know, and you see, you kind of, you, you can see these melodies that he's hearing. And um, it's, it's just one, it was magical. It was magical. Is, is that equate to basketball in any way? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, animation and basketball. You know, like with Glenn, if you sat down with Glenn and you watched him air, you know, animate um, Ariel, for example, you wouldn't know what he was animating after the first six, seven lines. You, you, you wouldn't know what the heck he was doing. It was like he was animating something else, right? But then after the 10th line, 11th line, then it's all of a sudden it's like, whoa, there it is, right? Because in his mind, he sees the full picture, but you from the outside cannot see that. And it's the same thing with John. It's the same thing for me when I played. You know, I'm thinking not just of what's happening here in front of you in the here and now in the first quarter, but how does that um, 
action that takes place in the first quarter connect to what takes place in the last two minutes of the game. Oh, so the same thing's going on in your head in the game. Yeah. Like, you're you're John Williams then. Absolutely. And the game is like a piece of music. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're responsible for an entire body of music that, that, that that's um, comprised of different instruments, right? And figuring out how to create a beautiful harmony or melody out of it. Um, and... You know, it requires a lot of thinking in the off season of putting that puzzle together to study and to kind of, so that then when you're in season, these things are felt; they're not thought, right? But you, it's a, you, know, you can feel those things. When the music came to you, was it completely perfect, or do you have a moment where you're saying, you know, John, at about three minutes and fifty <laughs> seconds, we could use a little more French horn. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about it, when we scored it, um, he was really excited. I mean, he was like, he was like, he was jacked up. He was like energized, you know, and and, um, and Glenn and I both realized when we're talking to each other, um, I mean, he was, uh, you know, kind of getting ready to, to start, that he had never heard the music. Right? If you think about it, I mean, he's, he's, it's an 80 instrument uh, piece. He's written every instrument out himself by hand, and he can hear the music and what it sounds like in his head. But for the first time, he himself is actually going to hear it for the first time. Whoa. Right? I mean, that's incredible. That's incredible. And so he starts to play, and I'm so excited that I, I almost yell, and I catch myself, and I realize the red light's on and we're recording, so I got to keep it cool. <laughs> You know, and 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 and, uh, and then he finishes the piece, and I'm just completely blown away. And he turns over his left shoulder and looks at me and Glenn sitting on the side. And he looks at us and he goes, "I promise you, it will get better." And I was like, "Uh, I kind of thought we were done. I mean, I, I don't know what you heard, but and, you know." And I turned over at Glenn, turned over my shoulder, look at Glenn, and and Glenn. In five and a half minutes, had sketched the entire room. So he had sketched all 80 instruments, John conducting, and me looking um, at John conduct. He had sketched that. So I'm like, wait, did you hear? Wait, what are you doing? Oh, man, you got to be kidding me. What the heck is going on in here? Kobe has moved on to start his own storytelling company. And my next clip is from a man who is the definition of reinvention. Dr. Oz, as we all know, is a heart surgeon, but he's also invented devices to improve procedures. And then he realized he could save only a few people a day on the operating table. And it would be much more efficient if he could convince a whole lot of others not to clog their arteries in the first place. Now, he's got an award-winning television show. Listen to him talk about something that is relevant to all of us. Change. But if you stay in that safe place and you build up little barriers to protect yourself, one day eventually you'll realize you're in a cage. And I think a lot of us do that even if we're not heart surgeons, right? You, we put ourselves in these nice little safe-seeming cocoons, uh, but they really are ultimately cages. And you got to bust out of the cage 
and do what your deeper mission is. So I've always wanted to be in the change business. I like changing people. I even, find that from, even from the very start? I was when- president of my student body at med school. I was president of my class. I, was, I won the captain's award at Harvard. I was captain of my football team in high school. Uh, you know, I, I, I just like the ability to influence people because I saw they were leaving so much on the table. Now, there's an arrogance to make you think you can do all that. I, and I'm respectful of that and, you know, I appropriately get criticized for thinking I can make such a big difference. But the world's only been changed by people who had irrational beliefs in what they could do. I mean, <laughs> right. people who have rational beliefs do rational things and that doesn't change the world so much. Uh, so if you're in the change business and heart surgery is a pretty changing, you know, uh, uh, profession for the people you take care of, then you begin to think, well, my goodness, did I change it enough? I mean, one by one by one, I can slowly take out 10,000 people and help them to do better than they would have done. But on my tombstone, I, I, maybe I have more to offer than that. And if I do, wouldn't it be shame on me if I didn't? So I began with a lot of strong mentoring. Lisa, my wife, Oprah, my, my father, and my father-in-law. You know, my mother-in-law was probably my, my harshest critic of all. Even though I love her dearly, but she, I love having her out there saying, because you know, she's, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hell raising enough. Oh, she wants you pushing. Yeah, my further. Mother, my mother-in-law wants me. My, my, my father-in-law and mother-in-law, iconic people. My father-in-law was one of the most famous heart surgeons in America on the first heart transplant team. Uh, in fact, I was playing Trivial Pursuit with him. Tell me, if Cal, if this has ever happened to you? Playing Trivial Pursuit with him, and I'm about to win. And the question is: This heart surgeon was named Rock Doc by Rolling Stone magazine because he was the first to play rock music in the OR, right? So. He's a little older than me. He probably knows the answer to this. So you got Michael DeBakey, Ted and Cooley. And his name's in there. Oh, man. So, he's a, and he's he, the answer to trivia. He's the answer to the question. How many people have the answer to the question again, playing opposite you? So, so he was you know, a well-respected surgeon, but he began to realize, as I have, that much of the battle needs to be fought outside the hospital. The real battle for health is fought in your home, your kitchen, your living room, your bedroom. That's where you win the battle for health. And so he began to realize that my mother-in-law, who's, you know, grow herbs and spices in the garden, had, you know, all these crazy, wacky ideas. Many of them have been proven to be true. true. <laughs> this whole belief that diet was the most fundamental driver of health, that food could fix it. The belief that when you walk into a grocery store, you're walking into a pharmacy, uh, you know, lived on a farm, had, you know, all these weird things. That two of them together in one house didn't make sense even, yet they made magic. Independent of my wife and her, you know, her the six siblings, they actually began to really challenge the status quo. So she's a hellraiser out there saying I should take on industry that, you know, that, that that a lot of what we've done to make life simpler was actually making life worse. And you know, they're not you know, luddites. They're not a throwback. They, they, she had really insightful reasons why she believed what she believed, and many of them ended up being you know, at least defensible. And I got my my father on the other side saying, "What are you doing? Get back in the get back in the operating room." Oh. My father was an old school surgeon, respectful of the fact that I was doing research that was innovative. You know, besides all the things I'm doing now, I mean, I, my my real innovative career started when I began inventing devices to fix our heart valves that didn't require surgery. When I was working on mechanical heart devices, these were technologies that were revolutionizing medicine. But it was sort of the basic philosophy: Why do the same thing my father did? Can I make it better than that? I mean, wasn't the whole purpose to stand on his shoulders so I can see further? To open up a vista of opportunities to change the world even more? I mean, if I could just sort of sloppily follow what he did, well, that's not such a big deal. How did he respond to that? 
seeing you stand on his shoulders and started to become an inventor. And like, at what point did it go from, hey, that's great, that's great, that hold it. How come you're not in the operating room more? He really started getting bothered when I began doing media, traditional media. He was okay with hard news, but when you start getting into talk show space where you're not just giving him the facts, ma'am. He's a dragnet kind of guy, Sergeant Friday. Okay. Give him the facts. Got it. And so when I began diverting my career, it began to influence his impression about it. Listen, I think- Has it, has it changed over time? Or does no, he, st- he not, still feels that way? 93 years old. Just the facts. Bull. Just yeah. the facts, ma'am. He, he, he's understanding that I would deviate from that path. But you know, deep down inside, he doesn't see the reason for this. But listen, I remember vividly, I, I was playing football in high school. He never understood why I played sports. I should just be studying. What's the point of playing sports? You don't get graded on it, right? And I made Allstate. First kid in my school of 20 years to make Allstate. And he, I, you know, it was in the paper. Like I was, you know, it's a big deal. I was 16. I wasn't even a senior, you know. And uh, he looked at it and he said, you know, what's this? I said, I'm at Allstate. It's such a good deal. I mean, everyone, <laughs> everyone knows who I am. He goes, yeah, I don't understand. What's the point? And I realized that he didn't really get the life I was going to live. So I needed to be respectful of what he had taught me, which is huge. But I shouldn't believe that he knows how to live my life better than me. That's a hard lesson for a kid to get. Uh, it's a very hard lesson for a father, now that I'm a father, to, to understand from his son. Right, because when I start to pressure my son, because I know what's best for him, obviously, right? I mean, I was there already. <laughs> the, the dad, right? Cat's cradle, right? I, I was there already. Come on, I, I know this. Don't make that mistake. And he wants to go off and do something I don't understand. You know, my wife's got to pull me back and say, "Listen, you know, egghead, you know, this is exactly the argument that you had, and I'm sure your father had with his father. We're supposed to go through that. It's that tug of war that's supposed to define what manhood is. When you go out there and and you realize it happens because you start arguing more." I always tell yeah. my residents that I know they're ready to graduate and be a surgeon. When they're arguing with you? When they're fighting with me. When they think they know how to do the operation better than me, now they're ready to graduate. Until then, if they're going to docilely take my advice, they won't be any better than me. The point is not to train them to be the same as me. The point is to train them to be better than me so they replace me. And that's a very big part. My, our mantra at Columbia is we train surgeons to save lives. That's the mantra. So I'm not training you to copy me. I'm training you to be better than me. Does, does all this put you in a place to make your next jump? I think about it. I, I'm, I, cha- I, I morphed the show and myself in order to keep up with what's going on in a country that's changed. The world's very different than 2007, 8 when I was planning my show and 2009 when I launched the show. And I'm having fun. It's enjoyable. But I mentioned earlier that I'm in the change business. So when the time comes when I don't feel I'm changing my audience – and influencing people as I could, then I'll look at other areas. And I'm fascinated by politics. I'm fascinated by academia. I think we have the opportunity for large movements that aren't political, you know, seismic shifts in how we see life. Uh, I think we're sort of stuck in a warrior mentality sometimes when so much of the bigger battles we have to fight to be happy in life aren't being fought. I have a good friend. He's become a good friend um, who was at Google a very senior job at Google, which means he did well, by the way. And he just quit. And I asked him why. And he's had some tragedy in his life, which I won't go into. Uh, but he says, listen, you know, my, my, my colleagues, and I know this business, 
and so I agree with them, believe that artificial intelligence will be able to do what we do better than us within 10 to 12 years. So if what we're doing is ugly and cheap and demeaning to our species and to the world around us, artificial intelligence will learn to do that. If what we're doing is making us happy and thoughtful and soulful and reminding us that we're like drops falling into the ocean of humanity, then artificial intelligence will be better than us at that. So what are we going to teach? It's like that old parable of the wolf, which I'm sure you've heard before, that is torturing this poor kid in his dreams. It's an Indian parable. Go ahead. And the, the, the son is telling the, the wise man that he's having these terrible dreams about being you know, t- tortured by a wolf. But then there's other animals that are saving him and, and sharing him and with the wisdom with him and, and lifting him. And he, he asks the wise man, what, you know, which is going to dominate? Which is going to win? What does this dream mean? And the wise man says, whoever you feed, that, that's who will win. If you feed evil, then evil will win. And we've been feeding evil or at least starving good for too long. And we need to flip that because as technology advances, it will accelerate and magnify what we're doing. One of the great parts of doing this podcast is I get a little therapy from my guests. This is Damon John, the founder of FUBU, and one of the stars of Shark Tank, counseling me as I move away from being solely a content creator to starting my own business. This clip starts with him showing me how to think scrappy and ends with a pep talk that anybody in business could play every day. You know, you tell a great story in Power Broke about what happens right after you make that deal with Samsung. Because money's coming in, yep. but it's money that you need to produce your product. Mm-hmm. It's, you don't have any extra money mm-hmm. for marketing. or uh, right. And you have this idea, and, and this is going to lead to my next question. Sure. Okay, I want to put up billboards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And billboards is a great way for everybody to see it, right? but not really cost-effective, right? Right. So you figure out an amazing way to create your own billboards. Yeah. Why don't you tell everybody about it, and it'll lead to my next question. So, again, power broke. I, I had to use my resources, which, you know, your resources, OPM, could be other people's money, marketing, manpower, mind power, manufacturing. And I noticed that all the bus stops had billboards, and I started, uh, you know, call around and ask, and these billboards were, you know, $2,000, $4,000 a month or something of that nature. But I noticed that in the neighborhood, you have nasty graffiti in some areas, and you have these old, old storm gates that are pulled down, these security gates. I would then go and talk to all the store owners and say, hey, I'm a little company from, you know, from the hood, and, you know, we, you know you're in the neighborhood making, you know, you know, doing good business with us and all of us, and these gates are nasty. Is it possible that I can whitewash them? I'm going to paint them. I'm going to maintain the, the upkeep of just 
painting them really beautifully. And I want to put on there, if possible, authorized FUBU dealer, you know, at on top of the gates. So I painted the oh, 300 of these gates from New York all the way up New Jersey. I could paint about three a night if I could. And I, I and I painted them over the course <laughs> of three years, authorized FUBU dealer. I didn't care if they were just selling Chinese food. They were authorized food with dealers as far as I was concerned, <laughs> as far as everybody else was concerned. And uh, when people would pass by, you know, later on they would do the analysis on, on these gates, but they would pull down usually during morning rush hour, right? No Chinese stores open at 730 in the morning generally. And sometimes during the winter, during evening rush hour, a lot of these other stores were closed. And so if they were billboards, technically that would have been about $3 million worth of billboards over the course of these years. Years and uh, it was just me trying to think outside the box and and utilize you know the things that are closest to me. You can't learn to think that way, can you? I mean, I'm listening to you say that. I think you can. I think it's common sense. I think I think a lot of times we are so dependent on other people selling us insecurities that we can't do things. It's common sense, you know. You you know, people don't trust their gut. You know, I remember when I was MTV was. was uh, when I first started making money. I, I think I put it in a book when MTV was charging uh, six or seven thousand dollars for a thirty-second commercial, um, and BET was charging uh, seven hundred dollars. You know, black entertainment television. Right. They both played music videos. Right. Um, now I, I know my demo. I, I was I was hitting primarily African Americans or kids who love hip hop. I know that every household that I went to, BET just played all day, like you know, just one channel all day. MTV for those type of videos, you can catch it on MTV, you can catch it on VH1, you can catch it on various various things. And I remember saying to myself, you know, how is the rating system? How? And they would say, well, this is called Nielsen rating. And I said, well, how do they rate? How do how do they know how many people are watching? Well, you know, they, they kind of go to the house where they have cable and they, you know, they, they see how many people are watching. So if you look at MTV, MTV's hitting a million people. BET's only hitting 100,000. I said, all right, I, I get it now. Common sense says that every projects I've been to, everybody has cable and nobody's paying for it, right? The family and the household and the projects are generally five and ten people. BET's on all the time. I'm not going to pay $6,000 for this because ain't no Nielsen rating boxes in the hood. So I paid. I took the same money that I would have used in uh, MTV, and I got 10 times more of the value because I just used common sense because I went on BT, and it ended up becoming way more successful than than MTV. It's just it's common sense sometimes. Sometimes you just got to just sit back and ask yourself why. Okay, this is going to lead to my next question, but I got to set it up. Because I went to college to be a journalist. And basically, we were told, hey, you love doing this? You love being a writer? Great. You get a job. You're going to get a salary. It's going to take care of you. Do what you love. Yeah. Great life. Yeah. One thing you can't do, you cannot cross the wall and go over to the side of the people who are working to bring in the money that pays you. If the sales. You, that's right. Sales, marketing, advertising. If you cross over the wall and go to that place, you're dead. It's over. Mm-hmm. You will never be trusted again. Mm-hmm. You will be shamed. You're done. Mm-hmm. Toast. Now, to you, that must sound like 
it's ridiculous. Well, were they saying that because they're saying the integrity of what you are writing would be compromised? That's right. That's right. what they're saying. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, that was a different time, right? That's, that's right. A way and, different time. And, and this is the point. So now we, we jump ahead decades, and I'm living in a different world. Only I still got this thing in my head. Do not cross the wall or you will die. Do not. And now I got to cross the wall. And so I realized there's no more wall there. Okay. Correct. Okay, there's no wall, mm-hmm. but I'm not thinking the way you're thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking at those that same grading that is down in front of a store and saying, man, that would make a great billboard. Because if you you know, if you're if you're providing quality to people Normal people don't mind you getting paid to keep the lights on. You know, they, they don't mind, you know, you know, and, and, and today's society, we see it. If you look on Instagram, every beautiful girl that's on Instagram is holding up uh, a protein shake, you know, every other two days or whatever cases. You look at the Kardashians, you know, they're doing this and people can people understand you got to pay the bill. And being a journalist, somebody who can who's a master of communication, you can communicate it as well. You know, it's 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 very simple, and especially being somebody who is seasoned like like you are, people will know that your body of work is here, right? Your body of work is forty years in. You, did you just all of a sudden become a scumbag today? Because you know, <laughs> it, it, you understand what I'm saying? So it's right. like, why not? Like I'll give you an example. My you know my podcast is out, and I um. I, as ZipRecruiter, sponsor my podcast, my right? Sponsor of, too, of, of course, right? Okay. And mid-roll and these amazing people, but. I believe in the person. I wouldn't have taken and or worked with them if I didn't believe in ZipRecruiter. Actually, after I did it, I put several ads on ZipRecruiter because of how effective it was. And if I'm telling people rise and grind, but ZipRecruiter is the company that gets you the best employees that know how to rise and grind, it makes sense. Now, would I have put tobacco? No, I would not. I don't believe in that, right? Would I have put something that's misogynistic? No, I don't believe in it. That's not the Damon John I am. I would never do that. So people can appreciate if it's on brand with who you are, and they know that, you know, this is this is called collaboration a lot of times, right? There are two different forces coming together to bring value, and that's all it is. Man, I'm so glad you, you brought this up to me. And for, for a lot of people listening, they may say, how can Cal not understand that? Right. Especially you're under 25, and you don't know the way the world used to work. Used to because, be, yeah. You know, back in the 60s, if you were a musician, a young musician, you would not advertise with a big company. You, you Forget it. Oh, the rappers, it's called in the hood, it's called keeping it real. It, You're not that, keeping right. it real. You got well, what it. the hell is keeping it real? You're a sellout. Well, I tell you the honest truth. That's what you're in business to do. Sell out, right? (laughs) I don't have any inventory. I sold out. After being emboldened by Damon, I sat down with marketing legend Seth Godin. He passed on so much wisdom, I could have created 50 of these clips. But here, he explains the societal shift that a career journalist like me is in the middle of. And it felt great 
to get his blessing on going into business. So what happens going forward? Well, that's always a good question. So let's think about poetry. The number of professional poets is really low. You can't make a living as a poet the way you used to 100 years ago. Because anyone can write poetry, but there's no place to put it. So it's similar to this situation. Except Bob Dylan's a poet, and he's worth $150 million. Because he's not just a poet, he's a famous poet with songs. So we see the constant morphing of what it even means to be a storyteller, what it even means to be a journalist. Maybe what it means to be a journalist is no longer you wait for your editor to give you an assignment and then you write this. Maybe what it means to be a journalist is 20 times a year you're on stage telling your stories for a lot of money and the rest of the time you're doing the work that enables you to tell those stories. That explains it. Here's the other thing. As you were talking, I was thinking, I have a buddy. His name is Inkyu. He's a spoken word poet. Mm -hmm. And he sold out the Ace Theater in downtown Los Angeles. There were people lined up around the block to hear him speak his poetry. Yeah. Uh, He does politically active poetry uh, that, like, against... Uh, guns and or for gun control, and it circulates around the web. Sure. So he's got a particular following, but he's able to do that, right? To to get on stage and have a following, right? So, I guess what what I'm wondering, where where my head got to get screwed on, is all right. There's no more wall there. Do I step to the other side and? meet these advertisers and brands and companies that have these products and form partnerships with them. Well, maybe you need a partner, right? That there are people who aren't good at all at what you do, but there are also people who are great at business development, at being a publisher. What is a publisher? A publisher is someone who takes a financial risk to bring an idea to an audience that doesn't know that idea exists and gets them to pay for it. So your partner can be the person who figures out how to make a podcast that makes a profit and then hires you as the half owner or the three-quarters owner of the business to make a podcast worth listening to. Now you're back to being a journalist again. That what's the challenge is we went into amateur hours. Everyone's a publisher and an author. Uh, I see, but here's the thing. When you started to package books, you were on both sides. Both. You were on both exactly. sides. That so permitted the, me to do it. And yes. this is what I'm wondering. Is, is it okay? Oh, it's totally okay. You have it, my blessing. <laughs> I put holy water in it. And then it was on to Melanie Whelan. I asked the Soul Cycle CEO if she had a young mentor. And it led her to give me the advice I needed as I start my business. Know your audience. Now that may sound obvious, but a guy like me was used to just going out and doing what I loved to do. I wasn't thinking about who was reading my work or when they read it. Well... I am now Melanie 
taught me how to grow. At the same time, I started to get pictures of people listening to my podcast all around the world. What a way to connect. So if you're up to it, go to calfussman.com and email me a photo of you or where you are when you listen to Big Questions. I'll put copies of the photos in a fishbowl at the end of the year and choose one. Then I'll travel to where that listener is and buy him a great dinner. You can thank Melanie for it. Do you find yourself looking for young people to mentor you in a way because they know their surroundings better than you do? Yes. Um, Earlier this year, I identified a millennial mentor because I realized that that was a segment of the population that I didn't really understand. And getting perspectives from all kinds of diverse backgrounds, whether age or um, community or upbringing or education, I think is really important, especially for a brand like ours that really is around broad community impact. You know, we want as many people as possible to come through the door. We believe that we can create real change through this personal transformation model that we operate. And so in order to do that and to really make sure that a marketing campaign is resonant, I want to get different people's input on that because they'll bring different perspectives to that. And that, again, I think that's where you get the best thinking. What have you learned from your millennial mentor? Is there one piece of advice or counsel that you grasped? So I think across the board, what we are all grappling with as humans is this notion of time. We don't have a lot of time, and we have a lot of choices of how we spend our time. And with social media and technology, we're all on our devices a lot more than we should be. And so what I really try to understand from her, as well as from my parents, as well as from my peers, is how they're making choices of how to spend their time, and ultimately how they're making choices of how to spend their money in that time. Because people ask me all the time about competition and how do I think about competition. And I always say, I think our one of our biggest competition is Netflix because the programming is so awesome and it's so easy to watch the next episode or binge the whole thing. And then you're going to sleep through your alarm and you're not going to come into Soul Cycle. And then what's going to happen next? Oh, no. What's going to happen is we're going to come to your house and we're going to find you. We're going to bring you back. But the truth <laughs> of it is that we are so time starved. So what I talk with her, my millennial mentor, about is how she's choosing to spend her time and how she's choosing to spend her money and what it's important to her. And it's interesting because it's different than when I was her age. And it's different certainly than who I am today because I've got two young kids. Um, so I think it's been really, really insightful. Bingo. That's what I needed to hear. I have to be thinking about people's time. Always. Well, that may seem obvious to you, but it never occurred to me. Uh, I don't know if, if this applies, but in my life, I've always been just trying to do what I love to do. I I wasn't really thinking about how other people would take it if I was going off to write a story or interviewing somebody. Wow. I get to sit down with Muhammad Ali, and then I write about it, and it goes out. But I was never thinking about the time in somebody else's day that they had to read that or where they would read it. 
And it's, it really is a whole different way of thinking for me. Thank you. You're welcome. That's great. This next clip shows how a mentee can become a mentor. It's with Alex Benayan, who I met while he was researching his upcoming book, The Third Door. The Third Door is about a young guy, Alex, who goes through what seems like a life crisis when he's a freshman in college. That's when he discovers he's not going to be the doctor his parents wanted him to be. He just can't sit over those biology books. So he's laying in bed, looking at the ceiling, wondering, what is he going to do with his life? Well, makes him think. What were the most successful people in the world doing when they were my age? It sends him on an adventure to find out. This clip is about that adventure, how it got started, but it also goes to, for me, an amazing place because you'll see that that adventure also took me to his best friend, Kevin Domenager. What I want to do with my life was the gateway, but it wasn't the big question. That led me to a bigger question of, okay, maybe I don't know exactly what I want to do with my life, but I know my interests. You know, I like business. I like technology. I like entertainment. So, you know, how did all these people who I look up to How did they break through when they were my age? Bill Gates, at some point in his life, was an unknown college student selling software out of his dorm room. Steven Spielberg, at some point in his life, had no credentials to his name, yet somehow he became the youngest director in Hollywood history. These are the things they don't teach you in class. So my big question was, when no one would take their meetings, when no one would answer their calls, how did these people find a way to break through and launch their careers? And I assumed there had to be a book with an answer to this question. You know, there's thousands, if not millions of books written over human history. There had to be something. So that's how I had books and books and books piled up in my dorm room. But eventually I was left empty-handed. Because the answer to the question was not in any of those books. Not only was it not in any of those books, the biographies would just skip over that time in their lives, but that's all I cared about, you know? You read Forbes magazine and it talks about how Bill Gates is giving away his billions. I want to know how he made his first thousand dollars, you know? (laughs) Forget about billions. I can't even, you know, buy Chipotle down the street. So I want to know how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software. I want to know how Lady Gaga got a record deal when nobody knew her name. So that's what really sparked this seven-year quest And I thought, Cal, you know, how hard could it be? Let me just call Bill Gates, interview him over the summer. (laughs) You know, once Bill says yes, I can interview everyone else. And by the end of three months, I'll be done. You know, fast forward seven years later, and I'm just (laughs) getting to the end of it. Well, the funny thing is I can remember meeting you. And I think you were about three years in. Uh, I met you, yep, just about three years into the journey. And I asked you where you're at, and you told me 
He had done a few interviews, and he said, and the book will be done in six months. <laughs> so even after three years, you still didn't understand what it, what it was going to take, because I remember the first piece of advice I gave you was, call up your publisher and tell your publisher you need like a year and a half extension. You know, I've thought a lot about this because you and I have joked about that moment. And it wasn't a moment. This, that conversation happened about 10 times. Yeah, because you didn't believe me. You're saying, no, no, six months, Cal. Don't worry. So, so uh, yeah, I've thought about it. And I don't know if the reason I told you, no, 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 Cal, it'll take six months, was because I actually believed it or subconsciously. And again, I don't know what the answer is. But another option is subconsciously I knew that if I admitted to myself it would take five years, it would sort of fall apart. There almost was this grand delusion of, oh, we're just almost at the finish line. You know, it's like telling a marathoner who's like not wearing any shoes, has never run a marathon before, and hasn't, you know, drank water for 10 hours. Oh, there's just a little bit more. That motivates her or him to keep going. Yeah, if you would have told me. You've still got 25 miles to go. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a cow. My feet can't take it. Um, and there's a beauty when people are starting something new. And it doesn't matter what your age is. This is really about a stage in life. You know, you can be an executive who quits your company to start a new company. You can be a first-time entrepreneur in your dorm room. There's a beauty in starting something new in the sense that if you don't know what you're doing, it actually is one of your greatest assets. Naivete. Because the beauty of it is you're filled with, you're fueled by possibility. Whereas the expert is fueled by limitations. That's a good point. And, and so having that naivete, you're just taking one step after another and just getting to the next milestone and celebrating and then moving on or getting beat up even more than you thought you were going to get beat right. up and looking around and wondering I don't know what you were wondering why you were getting beat up because you, you, you should just describe a list, the list of people that you wanted to talk to when you started the research for this book. So the idea, one of my first questions when I set off on this quest was who are the most successful people? You know, because the whole idea of this book was I was going to go track down some of the world's most successful people and figure out how they launch their careers. And then that leads to the question of who are the people you're going to talk to? And I don't believe in, you know, the Forbes 100 or all these lists of algorithms. You know, I don't really believe you can quantify success in those terms. So I had a problem. Who's going to be on my list? And I did a very simple solution. I called up my childhood best friends and I told them to come meet me one night. This is the summer you know, towards the end of my, at the end of my freshman year. And I asked my best friends, if you could build your dream university, who would be your professors? And then, you know, my friend Kevin goes, 
Oh, by the way, listeners of this should know that Kevin is Kevin the manager. <laughs> My manager, which we'll get to in a little while. So, but this was before he was Kevin the manager. This is when he was you know, just my best friend, Kevin, who still is my best friend, Kevin. Kevin goes, oh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg should teach us tech. And then my friend Ryan goes, oh, Warren Buffett should teach finance. You know, Maya Angelou poetry, Jane Goodall science, Lady Gaga music, Quincy Jones production. You know, the names just, it started feeling very natural when we thought about who do we want to learn from? And it was such a beautiful moment in hindsight of, young people not having any inhibitions and creating the world they want to live in. And then I naively just wrote down all the names, put them on a note card, put in my wallet. And I was like, all right, guys, I'll let you know how it goes at the end of the summer. In the spirit of greatest hits, I thought it'd be cool to choose some of my favorite ads from the first season. There are listeners who emailed in saying how much they love the storytelling in these ads. But there are others who have pointed out that my tone of voice can get a little carried away at times. So here are a couple of ads that touch on both. The first, for Squarespace, ran in the Kobe Bryant episode after he talked about how he used his awareness of fear to lift his game. The second, for ZipRecruiter, was my response to a few people calling me out for going over the top. One thing about them that nobody can deny, they're 100% authentic. Okay, okay, Kobe, we're going to take a break here, and I'm going to admit a fear that has plagued me for decades. It's embarrassing, but it explains why I've been terrible at technology for all these years. Decades ago, when emails first came out, I could not get mine to work. So I got on the phone with a specialist and he kept telling me it was simple. All I needed to do was put my name at, then the company, then dot com. So I kept typing in my name at the company, then D-O-T-C-O-M. <laughs> That's Kevin, the manager in the background, getting a good laugh at my expense. Well, as you can imagine, I just couldn't get it to work. It took us three hours to realize that I should be putting down the sign for a period, then C-O-M, instead of writing out D-O-T-C-O-M. Lame, 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 I know. But you want to know what's even worse? From that moment on, I grew further and further behind. Imagine me! the fastest typer in Miss Epstein's high school class, 80 words a minute, reduced to texting with my second finger, one lonely letter at a time, and mocked by my own children. 
And then, like Popeye finding a can of spinach, I found Squarespace. Squarespace gives even people like me the power to customize the most unique and beautiful website. I went to squarespace.com, came across a video tutorial. They got 24-7 customer service hotline. My curiosity was rekindled. The more I looked into Squarespace, the younger I became. I glanced at myself in the mirror, and even my fedora looks new. As I work on my new website with Squarespace, I'm asking myself a very big question. Will I ever be afraid of technology again? No! And of course, I've got to tell you about ZipRecruiter. I spoke earlier about trying to get to know how my listeners think. That goes for the ads, too. I've gotten emails from people telling me they actually wait for the storytelling around the ads and love the enthusiasm in my voice. But to be completely honest, I've also received some emails from listeners who tell me that my tone of voice can go, well, a little too far over the top for ZipRecruiter. So you know what? I'm going to downplay this session. I'm going to tell you as matter-of-factly as I can that I know the folks at ZipRecruiter. They've taken me around their office in Santa Monica. They've explained their algorithms to me. So I know that if you need to hire, all you need to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com, type in your job description, and with a single click, you'll have qualified candidates within 24 hours. And if you type in ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, you'll get a free trial. Man, it's hard for me to not scream this to the rooftops. But I just did it. One of the best parts of doing this podcast is getting to talk to women. For two decades, when I was interviewing the icons who shaped the world for Esquire magazine, I was mostly speaking to men because, well, because Esquire is a men's magazine. Now that I have this podcast, I can speak to all the women I want. In this segment of a conversation with Randy Zuckerberg, New York Times bestselling author, is just what I was hoping for. It details a flight where Randy was seated next to a vulgar guy and all the ramifications attached to it. I look forward to many more of these conversations. What I'm curious about is you had an incident back, I guess, last November in yeah. a plane. I wanted to ask you about this because two reasons. I want to hear what happened. Yeah. And two, I want to know how 
I should have acted if I was mm. seated in the row behind you. So I'm just going to let you tell the story and sure. we'll pick it up after and that. And I, you know, I also realize a lot of situations are gray situations. It's hard to know when to get involved. But uh, for me, I boarded a, a flight on Alaska Airlines. And bef- while, before the plane had even left the gate, while we were sitting there in that 30-minute period, um, the man seated next to me was so vulgar. I don't even want to repeat the things on this podcast that were coming out of his mouth because it was so disgusting. Um, and you're I, sitting. I was sitting. You, where, where, where I was, was sitting. Your seat? I was sitting by the window. I was in first class. So I was you were flying locked, on business. Locked in, in a way. That's you, right. I was locked in, and um, I had a friend who was a few rows behind me. So I started texting her saying you got to talk to a flight attendant for me because this man is terrible. Like you have to tell the flight attendant that they need, something needs to happen. And so my friend called over the flight attendant and she said, well, there's an open seat in the very last row of the plane. I can move your friend. Go to the back of the bus. Go to the back of the bus, right? I wasn't the one causing the problem. Why, why should I get up and move? I'm a, I'm a, business traveler on their airline, not causing any problems. And so the answer in our society is always for the woman. The onus is on the woman to take action. It's on the woman to call it out, the woman to remove herself, the woman to make the man feel comfortable. Oh, don't worry. You're one of the good ones. You're not part of it. You know, every interaction, the onus is on the woman. And so I just frankly, like, didn't want to deal with that bullshit. And I wasn't going to move. So I then so proceeded to he's get... he's sitting there while yeah. you're talking this out. That's right. And so you're completely explaining, I do not want to sit next to this guy. I mean, maybe I didn't say it in quite as, uh, <laughs> as terms as that because I, I then I got nervous. You know, I'm stuck with him for three hours. Is he going to get physical? Is Was he, he going to get aggressive? Guy? A big guy. And he, I should also mention that they served him about four cocktails during the flight. He was double fisting at several times. So um, th- I, I had no idea what he was going to say or do. And so I felt I had tried going the normal routes of what would have been acceptable to handle the situation. And I felt that on behalf of the thousands of women this must happen to every year, that I had an obligation to use my voice to call it out more publicly. And so here we go to the internet and storytelling. That's right. And we go to storytelling. um, And I mean, you can really see the power of the internet. I mean, I think it had been shared over a million times a few hours later. So you write a letter. Is that? I wrote a, yeah. Well, first I I tried contacting their customer service lines because I don't believe in just shaming companies online. I believe, you know, you should try to give a company a chance to solve it. But when you're not getting through, you turn to your platforms that you have. So I published an open letter to Alaska Airlines on my social media and it got picked up and, you know, I, lo and behold, I magically got a response from them, which I assume is because they felt sorry that I was a celebrity talking about it. And so not, do you, you know, think if you were not a celebrity, uh, if I, you hadn't written a best-selling book, if your brother hadn't yeah. started Facebook, I'm, that there would have been a different response? I'm certain there would have been a different response. But you know what? In your book... On page 66 of <laughs> Dot Complicated, you talk about a guy in Colombia 
who mm. just got fed up yep. with the terrorist uh, organization FARC, and he started a Facebook page, and within four hours had 1,500 followers. It's amazing. Within a week had, I think it was like 100,000, yeah. and then after a month, there were 12 million people Marching in the streets. It's incredible. I mean, you can really see when you touch a moment in the zeitgeist. The other thing that I love, I mean, you look on social media and it's full of these micro-influencers. I think, I mean, gone are the days of creating another Oprah-like celebrity. You know, now you have people who are really experts in fitness or experts in Bitcoin or expert, you know, and and they have a huge... uh, audience has huge influence in those spheres, but outside those spheres, you probably wouldn't even recognize them on the street. And uh, I think that is only made possible because of social media and because of, of these platforms too. So with, you know, there's everything is dot complicated, like the title of my book, everything, every new platform, every tech comes with opportunity and challenges and, uh, and it's all about navigating them. What happened to the flight attendants during this whole process because your friend alerts them, hey, see Randy? She's sitting up against the window. She's locked in. She's got a problem. They come to you, say go to the back of the bus. But how are they explaining this Uh, to you? And this is what I really think is a systemic problem in these industries is that I don't believe that the flight attendants felt empowered to do anything. These were female? These were female flight attendants. The guy next to me, it was explained to me. When I got up to go to the bathroom, one of the flight attendants kind of flagged me down. And she's like, listen, this guy is on this flight all the time. He's a frequent traveler on on this route. This is just how he is. Like, don't take it personally. So she was apologizing. So she was apologizing. So clearly they knew that this guy was a problem. But when you're a frequent customer, when you're a frequent traveler, they're not going to turn down your money. They're going to let you, you know, dole out a lot of crap to a lot of other passengers around you. And probably if he was treating me that way, I'm sure he was saying things to the flight attendants too. So I, I think we need to make sure that in these industries, I actually, I don't blame the, the flight attendants that much. I, I, I wish they had acted differently. I think they probably should have called a supervisor, done something. I think it's probably a bigger problem that they, as female flight attendants on the plane, did not feel empowered. And and I, I see it all the time. I am, I spend about 100 days a year on the road, and um, I, I travel all over the world. So I, I've really, you know, consider myself a pro traveler by now. And I have um, the, the highest status on, on a few airlines that you could fly because I've given my soul to flying. Um, and when they call, they usually do pre-boarding for that high status level. And um, whenever I go to board the plane, I usually get stopped like, oh, no, sorry, this we're just we're only boarding, you know, global service now or we're only boarding diamond because it's just I don't look like what a, a, a business tra- frequent business traveler looks like. Um, and so it's everywhere. It's everywhere in the industry. And it's just it's something we really need to think about. I can't even imagine how many tens of thousands of women every year are put in uncomfortable situations on the road. See, the, this is all new to me. <laughs> this is why I got to talk to women, because I could never anticipate that uh. if, if you have the card that says, hey, 
I've, I've flown three million miles last year, then you would be treated with respect. That's right. I, I don't look, when you look at me, I don't look like the kind of person who, you know, spent probably $100,000 on, on United Airlines last year. Like, I don't, I don't look like that when you look at me. So um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely something that I think we're going to have to start facing more uh, in society and something that certainly that situation on Alaska Airlines showed me that I have to step up and, and use my voice. So let's say I was sitting in the row behind. What yeah. would you have wanted me to do? I think if you had been in the row behind and you had overheard what was going on, it, sounds, it would have been a, a very nice thing to offer to switch seats. Ah, so th- that's smart. Yeah. Okay, that's smart. So now I'm not creating a confrontation. You're not creating confrontation. You're still, you know, sitting in business class. You know, you're sitting in your seat. And probably that guy next to you, once another man moves next to him, is going to be quiet. Do you, you think so? I mean, I, I can't imagine. I mean, well, I don't know what. Uh, yeah, I don't know what he was was saying. Unless or, I guess he wanted to like bro up to you or something. But right. uh, but who? I, I feel like another guy could shut that down pretty quickly. And here's a piece of my conversation about the same subject with Scooter Braun. Most of my talk with Scooter revolved around how he brought life to darkness in 2017. You might remember the concert of one of the artists he manages, Ariana Grande, was attacked by a suicide bomber last May. Scooter and Ariana responded by going back to Manchester to do another concert that made a very clear point. Manchester would keep singing its songs. He organized a telethon to raise funds for the victims of Hurricane Harvey. And here, Scooter talks about the treatment of women after so many stories of sexual harassment broke toward the end of last year. When Barack Obama became the president, people were like, we're not racist. You know, and Harvey Weinstein gets exposed and different people get exposed. And, you know, this isn't this end of sexual harassment in the workplace. You know, what we're doing is is continuing the fight and there is going to be, you know, more accountability that I think is a very good thing. But I don't think you're going to change adults. I, th- I hope that these experiences change the next generation and kind of teach them lessons because they're the ones who have to grow up a little bit differently and a lot differently. And um, I think, you know, for me to speak on that, all I can say is when I was younger, I was really short. I was like 4'11 as a freshman in high school. So I couldn't be anything but a girl's friend. And that gave me access to hearing all the things that they were frustrated by as a young man and realizing being the asshole as much as when we're in the locker room, maybe the guys are talking, I got to hear what the girls really think. And being the asshole is not something I wanted to be. So I always wanted to be the good guy. I wanted to be the respectful guy because that's what they all kept saying is the the guy they admire. Because I got to hear these conversations. And when I realize now I'm older and people are talking to me about the Harvey Weinsteins and this and that, the only reason I got that understanding is because I was put in a position where I listened. And I think the best thing we can do now as men is say, look, a lot of this we don't understand. 
You know, we can understand rape. We can under, but like some of these women are saying, you made me feel uncomfortable. We didn't even know we were making you feel uncomfortable. That's what I've heard a lot of guys say. Well, if we didn't know, instead of fighting it, why don't we just stop talking and listen to what they're saying? And maybe the next time we won't make them so uncomfortable. So that's kind of my point of view. You know, it's time for us to stop trying to figure it out and listen to what they're saying and let them tell us so we don't need to figure it out. Are you behaving differently when you're around women? No, because I'm, I've always been, you know, I was raised by a boss and I married a boss, you know, so uh, I, I, I have a respect for women and I've always had it, um, whether it be my mother, my sister, or my wife, uh, or any woman, my partner in this business, Allison. Um, but what about, where hug, I'm acting what diff- about hugging people? Oh, no, no. I definitely like, at this point, I'll say, may I hug you or something like that? Like, because it's, it's a heightened climate right now. But am I worried? Not at all. You know, and the last thing I want to do is create some kind of backlash for women where they feel like because they're speaking out, it's going to come back on them. I think that's ridiculous. And, and I think when men are kind of putting that out there, it's because they want to scare them. And I won't, I won't take part in that. I think what's going on now, I'd rather have swift justice than slow action. And, and I think that... Um, what is supposed to come out of this? The assholes are going to be gone. You know, and we're going to treat each other properly in the workplace, regardless of gender. That's what's supposed to come out of this. And hopefully a lot of amazing women will rise to the top in this as well, so that when women are winning awards and they talk about their mentors, they can name a female as their mentor instead of a man who helped them get to the top. Also on this topic, we have Deborah Lee, the chairman and CEO of BET, talking about the similarities of the civil rights movement and the women's movement with a story about a soda machine that nobody should ever forget. What I'm trying to grasp, and I, I was putting two different images in my head. I remember Rachel Robinson once telling me mm-hmm. when she was young, this is Jackie Robinson's yeah. wife. Mm-hmm. I, I know you know, right. but oh, I, they may the not audience. Know. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and her parents took her to a restaurant, mm-hmm. and they had different menus oh. for white people and for black people. Wow! And the prices on the the black menu were higher. And I started to think in my mind, whoa, 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 hold on here. Is that, is that any different in a way from mm-hmm. a woman going into a job, doing the same work as a man right. and getting paid less? Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Right. That's amazing. And I had never heard that story about the higher prices for um, black people. But I went to Greensboro, back to my hometown, um, about three weeks ago, and they honored me at the International Civil Rights Museum, which is basically a museum in Greensboro built around the Woolworths lunch counter. And I used to eat at that lunch counter every day. I worked across the street at Belk Department Store when I was in high school. And so 
they've, they've taken that whole store and turned it into a, a museum. And so they were giving us a tour through the museum. And they have the lunch counter set up just the way it was uh, in the 60s, you know, ice cream, 10 cents, hot dogs, 5 cents, whatever. But one of the things they had, which really uh, left an impact on me, they had a Coke machine, an old Coke machine, and it had two sides so that you could put it in a building and, you know, one side was for um, black um, folks and the other side was for white people. So if they had a colored area or whatever, on the white side, the Coke was five cent. On the black side, the Coke was 10 cent. It's like, how do you even justify something like that, especially to a group of people who are probably making less money? Well, no, no question making less money. And you're going to charge, I mean, it was a two-sided Coke machine, one side for blacks and the other side for whites. And is it just a matter of, well, that's the way it is, so if we want the Coke, we right. put in the dime. And, and is this sort of the way women have been living over time where, okay, this is the way it is, and if I complain, well... I may be pushed out. Showed out, totally, right. I think that has something to do with it. And there's always a breaking point, you know, with those four students in Greensboro who decided tonight was the night to sit at the counter and not move. They knew they weren't going to be served, but they they didn't move. And they came back every day until the summer was over, I mean, until summer break. And then I understand students from my high school, where I ended up going to high school, went and sat in for them. Um, So, you know, I think that's the moment we're in now with women, where they just said, okay, this is enough. You know, and, and one or two or three brave women spoke up. And now you see this outpouring. And now, back to the man who started it all, Tim Ferriss. Here he is talking about a new way to get an education through connections. Tim has taught me so much in the last two years, and I hope this segment, bruising at times, helps everyone understand that while we're all going to take some lumps, if we think differently and make the right connections, we will triumph. This segment cuts off before we find out that Tim uses the connection he made during this phase to become one of the first investors in Uber. But what if I created my own real-world MBA where I invested in startups and did $60,000 each year for two years? Oh, man. And it's the Tim Ferriss MBA where I assume... That is a sunk cost. So I assume that every investment is going to tank to zero, but that I can approach doing it in a way that I develop more relationships with people like Mike, with entrepreneurs, and develop a skill set of assessing deals and so on that will ultimately, in the long term, return that manifold. And so, so that's. E- even if you break even. You've gotten your You're extremely MBA. far ahead. Yeah. Even if you lose the money, my assumption. So this, the assumption is very important. The assumption was I would not make that money back in the investments 
but that I would make that money back over the long haul by developing relationships and skills that would transcend that two-year period. So you're willing to go through the 120000 because it was worth it. Just tuition. Like, I viewed that it as was tuition. tuition. Wow. And so that was a good decision that I made. Uh, I proceeded shortly thereafter because I didn't know what I was doing to make a bunch of really bad investment decisions, all of which went to zero. <laughs> you, <laughs> but, you lost the 120. Uh, I didn't know. So I didn't lose 120, but the first 50, I lost almost immediately. And I remember... <laughs> like in one day, in two days. Oh, in like one, in one bet. And I remember <laughs> Mike, who's originally from Texas and... He loves to play this card, which I now play myself because I can use Long Island as a crutch. He's like, well, I'm just a slow country boy. And whenever someone says that to you, be very, very careful (laughs) because they are setting you up. Uh, And so he'll be like, well, I'm I'm just a slow country boy, but do you think that might be a little aggressive? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, no way, Mike. This is going to be the next Google. And he's like, okay, kid. And then just, you know, I have to learn not to put my hand on the stove. Uh, and that's a lesson you have to learn personally. So the, the point being that in the very beginning, I made a number of very, very poor decisions uh, that were, were emotionally charged. And keep in mind, like you said, the four-hour work week's just come out, and all of a sudden, people are sending me invitations and opportunities in a way that I'd never experienced before. So I made the... <clears throat> at the time, what seemed like the right decision to say yes to everything. I said yes to everything. So all the speaking, the the speaking engagement offers that came in and I said, wait, let me get this right. You'll pay me to come talk. And (laughs) this is what uh, (laughs) General Schwarzkopf once uh, told Larry King that uh, speaking for a living is white collar crime. (laughs) is not that far off. And so I said, wait a second, wait a second. So I get to come and talk about whatever I talk about and you pay me for it. And they're like, yeah, that's exactly what we do. I'm like, oh, well, yes. <laughs> so I said yes to all of it. Now, so now even right. more money's well, coming in. Well, now, so keep in mind, so there's money going out because I'm making bad investment decisions. <laughs> and then there's money coming in from the speaking engagements. But so I said yes to everything, but to paint a picture, this is a fairly common experience for authors who have never been exposed to this before. If they have a, a success, they go, "Oh my god, like this is just miracle money." And they say yes to everything, and then what happens? What happens is you pay no penalty until 6 months later when all of these things are stacked every 3 days for whatever, let's just call it Two you months. Surrendered your freedom. You have, you cannot accomplish anything else. And I also made a huge novice mistake, which was I tried to do, you're going to, you're going to love this. Uh, I tried to do a unique talk for every audience, <laughs> I which, love it. which is I not, love it. by the way, how you do, not how you play this game at a high <laughs> level. The way you play this game at a high level is you have your specialty moves and you just get really good at your specialty moves and throw in like a local reference, right? It's sort of like a politician. They, they it's they like Chattanooga, how about them beaver tails? Ha ha ha. And then you roll into your material that you know works. It's not like a stand-up comedian does a new show every week. It'd be suicide which is exactly the same with public speaking. So I ended up feeling like George Clooney from, uh, I think it's Up in the Air, is that the one, where he travels with his backpack everywhere, and that's his life, is like gathering points at hotels. So that's how I felt for a while. Uh, But yes, to your point, 
there were suddenly opportunities coming in and, and learning to say no or filter things became more important than the enthusiasm and willingness to say yes. So it's, it's a, that's a huge gear shift uh, when you are w- accustomed to being able to, having the capacity, and keeping in mind, and I'm bouncing around a little bit, but that uh, I had been a, by any definition, uh, extreme workaholic for a very long period of time, and then had all these experiences, took my walkabout around the world, and found a more elegant way to approach it. But that that little devil on the shoulder that is telling you, come on, like you can outwork people. You have incredible work capacity. You can always do another speaking engagement. That little, that little demon on the shoulder, for any of you, I'm going to age myself now, who have seen Animal House, like that little devil on the shoulder whispering uh, that in yeah. your ear is still there. And uh, so you have to be very careful as someone who's an anything ick addict, in this case for me, workaholic, uh, to avoid the places that are slippery if you don't want to slip, right? As they say in AA. Uh, so I felt the siren song of saying yes to everything because I could overcommit and then figure it out later coming back. And uh, so that was a good test for me. Uh, I think I, I survived it, but I did at points definitely overcommit. So you're making a lot of mistakes at once here. You I'm making 50, a lot. 50 grand's going. I'm making a lot of mistakes at once because I'm having, I'm being provided more opportunities to make more mistakes in part. But yes, I'm making tons of mistakes. However, that real world MBA, unbeknownst to me, or unexpectedly, I should say, set the groundwork. So it's the mistakes actually sowed the seeds of later success and as this sometimes happens. So I overspent. I mean, first investment, keep in mind, I've allocated in my head 60,000 for the first year, 60,000 for the next. I lose 50K on the first bet. I mean, it's stupid on a, a, a number of different levels. Now what? I have 10K left for the year. Do I just pull forward and take the 60K, get an advance on the 60K for the second yeah, year? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I realized really quickly, wow, okay, if I want to approach this in a financially uh, responsible way with any nod to portfolio theory and how this game really works, if you understand the probabilities, I'm going to run out of money. Like, I don't have enough bankroll as, as, say, a poker player. Like, if there's an element of chance, like, you, the, the, the amount of bankroll you have, depending on the tournament you're entering, is really important. You might be the best poker player in the world, but if you have a string of bad luck, you need to be able to afford the losses. And you were convinced that I'm stopping at 120. You, you weren't going to throw more in. Well, that was the plan, and I wanted to stick to the plan. Uh, so that forced me to have conversations with people who were very good in that space, who Mike, some of, some of whom Mike had intro, intro, introduced me to, uh, to figure out a way to extend the runway without more money. So how do you do that? Well, when I what I decided to do was to make tiny investments. I was like, all right, no more 50K. That's crazy. I'm going to make tiny investments like 10K, which is kind of the minimum that any company would take. They don't allow you to invest for $10 or something like that. There are exceptions now with crowdfunding platforms and so on. But in in this world, in 2008, let's call it, you could really put the, the minimum table stakes were 10 grand. All right. So I put in 10 grand and then I proceed to put in like a hundred grand of immediate 
value of of work, right? This this will make sense in a second. So I've I've begged and pleaded, maybe with Mike's help, to allow some CEO in a an attractive company to allow me <laughs> to put in ten thousand dollars. All right. Yeah, and uh, so they allow me to do that, and then I proceed because I've I've looked at the company very carefully and have determined that I can fix a number of problems that are low hanging fruit. I immediately put in a disproportionate amount of time. In other words, no investor who is sane, who's only put in ten thousand dollars, would ever put in the amount of work that I proceed to put in. And the CEO goes, "Holy shit." This guy is the cheapest laborer and the highest value laborer we've ever seen. What does this allow me to do? This allows me to then develop a reputation very quickly for being high value with a handful of CEOs who can then say, you want him as an investor. And you would just go into school. Thank you, Tim. I'm on my way to making new connections. We'll see where they take me. We're going to begin a whole new season next week. Going to have some great guests and even some new theme music. I guess the point of this is to keep learning until you're a master and then try something new. So you need to learn how to master it all over again. That's where I'm at with this podcast. Thank you all for coming along. The journey has just begun. thanks Squarespace for the look of my new website. Check it out. Then go to squarespace.com and get a 10% discount on a new domain name or website by typing in the offer code Fussman. That's F-U-S-S-M-A-N. You too can have a beautiful and unique site that will show the world who you are in a new way. Squarespace. want to thank ZipRecruiter for helping me get this podcast off the ground. Let ZipRecruiter help your business by finding just the right talent for you to hire. All you got to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, type in the job description, and you'll have qualified candidates within 24 hours. That saves you a lot time, and work. So go to ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I can never thank Tim Ferriss enough for pushing me to start this podcast, but I'll keep trying. Also, want to send some gratitude to Kevin DeManager for driving this train, as well as some great audio guys. Luz Fleming and Philip Lanos. Hey, we can't leave out the folks at Midroll Media. That means you, Lex, and you, Alex. And I really got to send out my thanks to all of you who are listening. Thank you for sharing this journey with me. The best is yet to come. See you next week. <laughs>